Hey guys, this is Joe. I just wanted to hop on before we got started to talk about a few exciting format changes uh, that are going to be happening to the Right Way podcast. Starting with this episode that you're about to listen to right now, Right Way will be releasing podcast episodes every other week, twice a month. So that's twice the content you've been getting up until this point. That's twice the insight, twice the intel, twice the trade secrets, and twice the dirt. Also, in order to usher in this new era, uh, this very episode, uh, we've sort of broken protocol a bit, and instead of our usual sizzling hot published industry content, uh, Rhea and I have a very candid conversation about um, failures, mistakes, and setbacks that we've experienced in the trajectory of our careers. Not to worry, we'll be back on point first thing next episode, but we thought it'd be a worthwhile departure so you guys get an idea of why we talk about what we talk about the way we talk about it. Really hope that you enjoyed the episode today. Really hope that you've enjoyed all the episodes so far and really hope you enjoy twice the episodes per month uh, that you're going to be getting from this moment forward. Do me a favor and as you listen, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you like what we're doing, let us know. If you don't, let us know. Thanks again and right on, guys. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Right Way Podcast. Today, we are going to be getting a little bit more real (laughs) than we normally do. Um, We're going to have more of a conversation and get a little personal because today we're talking about all the ways that Joe and I have failed miserably (laughs) in this career. It's going to be, we're going to be light on the uh, relevant content relevant to writing and publishing and heavy on the content about how we have fucked up. (laughs) Well, I still think it's relevant, though, because I don't know. I think it's easy to be an aspiring writer, to kind of sit back and look at other people or you're looking at the highlight reel of people, whether you're listening to podcasts, you're looking at social media, you're, you're like, oh my God, how do I get from here to there? And it's not glamorous. It's not a glamorous road there. I've said it before. There is no there, there. And we're really going to talk about this decades long journey really to get to where we both are. And if I'm being completely honest, I don't know about you, Joe, but I'm nowhere near where I'd actually like to be. (laughs) Girl, I, uh, I totally agree. And I think, uh, you know, I, I love that you said you, you used the, the term highlight reel because, you know, we live in the highlight reel generation and, you know, where most of our lives are not only put on display, but where we're taking in other people's lives through social media, we're seeing it through this insane filter. And I think, if nothing else, this ep- this conversation between you and I is just a way to give anyone out there listening any kind of reassurance that however, whatever you're watching that seems to depict that this path is smooth and paved and straight and uh, is absolutely not true. And if you're fucking up and if you're tired and if you're stressed... And if you need days off and if you ate too many, mini crunch bars while you're wa- while you were watching Brooklyn nine, nine last night, <laughs> it that's su- super specific didn't happen. It happened to a friend of mine. Um, if, if that's the case, if you, and, and 
you're looking at everybody else and you're going, I am way behind. We're here to tell you today that that is not true. It's not true. I mean, we it's so hard not to live in this competitive, comparable um, life, no matter what industry you're in. I do it all the time and it it always has everything to do with social media. And when I'm feeling like, okay, I'm doing the best I can and I've ma- I've had a lot of successes and accomplishments, which, you know, we never sit with anyway. We never like pat ourselves on the back and like bask in the moment. It's always on to the next moment. But when I when I see these authors who, you know, maybe had their debut novel come out and they've literally like they've won every award. It's been on every list. It's been everywhere. And they're just like swimming in all of these accolades and accomplishments and recognition. It instantly makes you feel less than or that why isn't that happening to you or you know you get this this complex like we start to doubt ourselves I think this well that's so huge right that's so huge the um and it's a tough pill to swallow I I think and I think we all have a tendency to do it um and it's it's hard to break yourself to like disabuse yourself of the habit but another person's success is does not mean your failure. We, but we say this all the time, and it it still doesn't get through. I mean, I, and I've done that my whole life. My I whole mean, life. Too. I think yeah. one of the things that's like held me back is like, and you know, when I was younger, I think it manifested in in especially like when we were in college. Like, I feel like it it eternally manifested in like this. I somehow took this kind of adolescent pride in being a being a critic of 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 other people's work and the the reality was it was just because everybody else working and putting themselves out there uh made me feel inferior um which is you know what's that's what that's motivated by yeah and i think i'm still to this day really afraid to go all in with my writing career because i'm afraid oh well what about if I never get where I want to be or what about if I just fail or what about if no one wants to read my books anymore? What about if this, what about if that instead of just, so I think I busy myself with so many other things because then I don't have to face it and, and really sit with it and go all in and, and be just a full time novelist. Well, and it's funny that you say that because, and not, I'm not trying to like one upsman the failure, but (laughs) You say that you say you're afraid to go all in on your writing as a uh, best-selling author and like multiple like with with multiple titles. I'm so afraid to go all in on my writing that I've never even finished a b- the book. You know Which what I mean? Which is crazy like, to the, me because quote, unquote, you're like the book, and you're so talented, and it's and and that's the thing that I see around me and that's why I'm such a champion for other people's work because I'm like oh my god you you can absolutely do this it is possible and for me I you know I was raised thinking okay that's that's cute writing is a hobby writing is you know like the thing that you do more than anything but you're never going to make any money at it and we've talked explicitly about this um, subject in general and how, yes, you can make money. But even going into college, you know, I got a, I got a, (laughs) like, I got an open invitation to go to Harvard uh, during college. And what? Yeah. Like I got this, I I won this like alumni 
award. And I mean, I was a total nerd. I was, you know, salutatorian of high school and always did really well and blah, blah, blah. But and then I got some athletic training scholarships um, because I also wanted to go in the health and wellness realm. But when I visited Chicago and went to, you know, (laughs) like visited Columbia and saw like, oh, shit. Columbia College. Columbia College. Columbia College. So and I so let me let me get this straight. Like and I'm will not. I love Columbia College. I will not be shit talking uh, anyone but myself on this particular episode. But you forwent Harvard <laughs> for Columbia College, which can I reiterate? And I think I've said this on the podcast before. Uh, just so everyone knows, Rhea and I went to college together, if that wasn't clear. Rhea was the valedictorian of our class. That, that uh, probably wouldn't have happened just, at Harvard. So, <laughs> Well, I don't know. You are the most motivated person I know. You know, so. you know why I did that? So I... I did not want to go to college. I fought tooth and nail. I was tired. I've been a hustler my whole life. I felt like I played really well at the game of school. I wanted to go to work. I wanted to like go to New York and become a literary agent or like, shit, if I want to be a writer, then I need to go write. I don't need to sit in a classroom for four more years um, unless I want to, you know, do something in the science field or become an engineer or do something. Did your parents, were your parents encouraging the college? Oh, I, I mean, it was mandatory. So both of my parents, they got married when they were 18. They did not go to college. So I think it was one of those things like, no, you need to do this. My brother, you know, of course, went to college and got one job. He's a music teacher. He's had the same job since he was 21 years old. And he took a very, like, he always knew what he wanted to do. He, you know, took that one route. And I just wanted to kind of travel. I wanted to take a gap year. I wanted to work. I wanted to write. I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. But but when I did go and visit Columbia, there was just such a... I don't know. It was unlike any place I'd been. There wasn't a real like college campus and it wasn't, um, I don't know. It just wasn't what I figured a typical college experience would be. I was like, oh, I'm actually going to get to write. But I fought it the whole four years. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to, I was like, this is so stupid. Why do I have to sit in a classroom for four hours? Like I just want to go to work. Um, well, one other one other thing I want to say about that too, uh, you know, uh, relative to my or or maybe converse to my own experience is I really respect the fact that you were willing to fight to elude college. Um, <laughs> and I would say, and I, I think I think there's a difference. All right, I think there's a difference. I'm not sure if we're if for the purposes of, of this episode that we're going to delineate, but. I'm sort of conflating failure and, and mistake, which maybe from like a oh, I made so many mistakes. A psychological <laughs> standpoint, maybe like my therapist would be like, "Uh, do you want to say that back to yourself?" Like, I don't think that you know. Uh, so maybe that's not true, but I I sort of more view. I don't know if I perceive failure as much as I perceive or or if I do perceive like the mistakes I've made as, as failure. And I think one of the mistakes slash failures that I, I wish I could sort of go back and correct is having the, the, that, that, that sense of, of courage and that, that ambition that you had to, 
to avoid to to say no to college and and go out on my own because I I persistently from Jesus from 1998-99 all the way up through 2011 uh I I did nothing but sort of seek the refuge of a classroom or a college because I think in part and it's fine to say like oh yeah I've been I've had I've two you know I've been through two master's degree programs I I finished college etc cetera, etc cetera. but I think like the reality is I think I kept going back I think I needed it because I didn't have any faith in myself. Sure. Well, I think that happens a lot, right? That's what we're taught. That's what we grow up to that's what we grow up to believe is like we must seek our purpose and figure out what we're going to do and have people teach it to us and pay a bunch of money and enter the world in debt in order to be successful. And I'm not like And I and I I will say at every level at every at every at every tier uh in 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 higher education um, I learned more. The lessons that I learned on the outside were always more vo- uh, valuable than the lessons that I learned in, in a classroom. Oh, a hundred percent. I learned and good not... skills in a classroom, but but the really valuable lessons I learned outside. Yeah, and I'm not like putting down education or college. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's all so amazing, but I also think it's very up to the individual with what they want to do and how they want to spend their time, which is their most valuable asset. And I remember like, so one of my biggest early, earliest failures, which kind of, they go hand in hand is I was a senior in college and I wanted to get published. It was just like the thing, I mean, I'd gotten published like here and there and little, little things, but I wanted to write a novel and I wanted to get published. So I did have, I think I've spoken about this before. I, I had brain surgery during my freshman year of college during spring break. And during that, during that spring break, I wrote basically what would become my first, you know, quote unquote novel. We'll say that very loosely um, called A Woman's Ring, uh, which is about a woman who abandons her children to pursue a professional boxing career. Uh, Yeah, that's totally written by, you know, a 20 year old. So, I, I mean, I wrote it and I was like, I'm getting this published. This is going to get published one way or another. I really had, I guess I'd interned at that literary agency. I kind of knew how things worked, but I started submitting, like submitting, submitting submitting, submitting. And I submitted to this publisher called back then, it doesn't exist anymore, called Dare to Dream Publishing, should have known right then. And they offered me a contract. There was no advance. They were. I remember when you got published and I I, I feel like who cares? I feel like we were still in college and you were getting published. No, no, no. But but it was so not a, a good deal. I mean, they, so the moment I started asking questions, I started asking just legitimate questions about how this would all work. Are there books in bookstores? And I started going to the bookstore and was like, no, their books aren't in here. And the moment I started questioning them, they like threatened to take the contract away. They were so like derogatory and like red flags everywhere. But instead of listening to that and realizing, hey, this, you know what, this probably isn't going to be a good deal. They, you know, they threatened to take it away. I was like, no, 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 no. You know, I was 20, 21 years old, 22 years old. And so I said yes. And I entered this contract. And I remember I was getting ready for my book release party. I was so excited. And when those books arrived, number one, the prologue was 
printed twice in the book. So I had to manually like razor out the second prologue. The cover was the most, I mean, the, the graphics, the cover, it was just, I like cried when I pulled the book out. Cause I was like, this is the most unprofessional looking book that I've ever seen. And I had like professors and like all these people coming to my book release party, not to mention. So a few months before this happened, I decided to get married my senior year of college and Joe Tower and our other friend, Tim Lotesto were like, what are you doing? Like you're 22. And it's, it's so interesting. These are two of my biggest, not regrets, but like I don't look at divorce like I got married and then I got divorced years later as a failure. But it was I I was so obsessed with the concept of something like I wasn't someone who ever wanted to get married. I never wanted children. But then I got enticed by this picture of something and decided, oh, no, I want that. And I, I just didn't think through the steps. I did not listen to my gut. Like when I got married, I had a panic attack before I walked down the aisle, the person I married, who we're friends now, great, we all get along, like, super awesome, but he was 12 years older than me, and I remember standing there before I was supposed to walk down the aisle, and I had a panic attack, and my dad looked at me, and he was like, we don't have to do this, we can just run away, and everybody has to deal with it, but we had already paid for the wedding, I, you know, everybody was there, and I did not listen to my gut and my gut was screaming at me just as it had been with that book deal. And I knew that like both of them, they weren't what I really wanted, but I said yes anyway and and kind of went through it. And, you know, during that marriage, instead of going to work, like, yeah, I graduated college. I had this degree. I was building this career we ended up moving back to Nashville from Chicago because he wanted stability and he had an opportunity to work with my father. So we went from living in downtown Chicago to a tiny little house in a tiny suburb where I'd grown up and I totally lost my identity. I spent the next seven years like playing house when I should have built a career and being told that I would never make money as a writer that I, you know, like I was dependent upon a man for money that I could never, you know, branch out on my own, which is the reason I took so long to get a divorce because I did not believe I had money-making potential. Um, and I was scared shitless to like branch out on my own and like really, really go for it. And it wasn't until this was right before my marriage imploded Um, and there were just like lots of things going on within the marriage, but I applied to this writing program called Paris American Academy in Paris. It was a six week program for writers and you had to get accepted. And I remember going and that like totally changed my life. I mean, I was immersed in writing all day, every day. I met some amazing people that I still, you know, talk to, to this day And it was the first time where I got to focus solely on nothing else but writing. And I think that that kind of gave me the courage to be like, you know what? No, I can I can do this someday. And I didn't do it for another like 10 years (laughs) until I really believed in myself. But that was kind of the catalyst that then led to the divorce that then led to a whole series of other things that 
kind of got me to where I am now. So I don't see it as a mistake, but I definitely, you know, those two failures went like so hand in hand to me and, and kind of like paved the way, um, for like a very different future. But I, but I still play that dumb game of like, God, if I hadn't gotten married, like, where would I be? Would I have become, you know, a best-selling author in my 20s? Would I have become an agent? Would I have, you know, you can't play that game. Well, you shouldn't play that game. I mean, you can, and we all do. I mean, that's like one of my, like, nightly ruminations is all of my, like, shoulda, coulda, wouldas. And, I, you know, and, and it's unfortunate. And I really think, yeah, I think one of the big lessons there is, like, that is the most detrimental thought process to just think about where you would have been if you hadn't done, if you'd done X instead of Y. Well, something that you said that really resonated with me was uh, when you, when you said you, you'd become convinced that you wanted the idea of something. Um, and I think like, honestly, I think I had to get close in on 40 and really hit rock bottom to realize how much that not how much that that just like is a is a folly and 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 how much that it but it's sort of like is it, when we get obsessed with a concept it can sort of dictate not just the one choice a singular choice but like many many choices and I've, I did that time and time again. And I think one of the reasons that I've so stalled out as a creative on a number of different occasions, and I would say that, like, from a certain standpoint, like the last maybe five years of my life have been something of a creative awakening. I, I think that one of my my grievances with myself, one of my whatever you want to call it, failure, mistake, whatever, is that that very thing that you mentioned, that idea of being obsessed with a concept, sort of ruled how, what I, how I lived. And the problem with being obsessed with a concept is that if you're obsessed with, say, you know, like when I was in college and grad school, if you're obsessed with, the concept of be being a writer, you're never going to really write anything <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. of note if that's not the focus. The focus has to be the thing, not the concept of the thing, the result of the thing. And I look back at so many decisions. One of the things that really came to mind that was definitely like a, not a failure, but again, a, a mistake. Like I think what, what being in love with a concept does is it, and I know, you know, people say, you know, fake it till you make it or whatever, but I think it encourages the, the representation of a thing rather than the thing itself. You know, obviously it does. It, that's what it does. And I think that it made me more willing to like fabricate the illusion that I was a writer um, because I was just obsessed with being a writer. So I would talk a good game and I would try to show a good game and 
I, you know, I worked for a little bit with um, a great company. Uh, they had a great, um, uh, they were a, a performance collective and they had a, a storytelling um, show, short storytelling series that they still do. And I, I remember at one point, like I, I, on uh, for a, when I moved back home from Chicago, I had misrepresented myself um, with that with with them. Um, uh, had misrepresented the work. I I referred. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I referred to myself as something that I wasn't. I think I referred to myself as like a a writer in residence with them or something. And it it just like wasn't true, but I I was trying desperately to create the image of something that I wanted to be rather than putting the effort into trying to be. God, it. yeah. And it's so funny too, though, perception, how perception plays into this, because I remember looking at you and thinking like, oh my God, he's doing so many things. Like you're up on stage and you're involved with all, like everything at Columbia and you went to, didn't you do the LA like screenwriting little school thing or something? Wasn't there like a six week program for that oh yeah i did yeah. a semester in LA, right so yeah. i was just like god he's like doing it like all of these other people around me are are doing these amazing things and i'm gonna be in this house like playing house when i did not i mean and that was my choice and i had to live with that but i i struggled so hugely with that but it all kind of led to this like my rock bottom which actually ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me is like once we decided to get divorced and we separated, I got involved with my married best friend who told me that his his marriage was ending too, which was so not the truth. And we embarked on this like, oh, really? oh God, it was. And I think deep down I knew that, but like she was always, she was a stylist and she was always away on tour and he was like our marriage is ending. It's been over for a long time. She was never around and I wanted to believe once again, what I wanted to believe. And I think I'd been in such a, a sad place for so long that I transferred everything I hadn't felt in my marriage onto this one person. And, and we embarked in this like torrid six month affair. And I realized like, okay, I, I felt almost like addicted to this human being and I knew that the only way to get out of it and to really get on with my life was to move away. And at that time, I'd actually, you know, I owned an amazing home, which we were going to have to sell. So I was living, my parents had a loft at the time downtown in Nashville. I stayed there and was trying to figure out what to do next. And a former roommate of mine in Chicago reached out and she was like, hey, she lived with an artist um, in this huge loft in Chicago, in the West Loop of Chicago, Fulton Market, before it got really overpriced and crazy. It was like the meatpacking district um, and kind of kind of grungy, but like super cool. These huge, you know, 3,000 square foot lofts. And she was like, hey, we have a room for rent if you are thinking about moving back to Chicago. So at this time, I mean, I had a nice, a super nice house. I had not been anyone's roommate for a very long time. And I decided like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to blow up my life and I'm going to pack everything I have into, you know, my car. I'm going to leave this guy that I am madly in love with. And, you know, I left my cats. I had two cats at the time. I left my family. I left my friends 
And I went back to Chicago and I remember moving into this, it was like a hundred square foot room. I mean, it was so tiny and I didn't bring all of my possessions. And I, I just remember that first night, like both of them loved to stay up until 3 a.m. And it was so loud. I didn't even have walls that went like all the way up to the ceiling. And I was like, what have I done? I just want to go home. Like, this is a disaster. What am I doing? Of course, I ended up staying. And a couple weeks into staying there, I got this random call from a literary agent that I had done some work with in the past. And she was like, hey, I have this ghostwriting gig for this lady who's writing a book about Swiss chocolate in Switzerland. And she needs someone to come out there and write this book with her. And I was like, done. And so this was like my first paid gig in a long time as a writer because I just, I hadn't really put any effort into it. So I got on a plane and I went and met this woman, this total stranger in Switzerland. It was, again, totally transformative, just like the Paris trip. And, you know, it really, again, solidified like, no, I can, I can do this. Like I can, there are ways to make money writing, even if it's not novels. And so I started getting involved like and, you know, uh, just writing for random magazines and people around Chicago again and becoming a freelancer. And those little, like, odd jobs really started to, I don't know, just create a new belief in myself. Like, here I was. I was on my own. I did have a healthy amount of savings at the time because we had um, sold the house. But I, I, it was the first time, you know, I was still in my 20s that I had been like on my own, uh, which is really sad like because it was, you know, it was nearing like late 20s, but it was the first time that I stood kind of on my own two feet. And I was like, shit, this is what people should be doing at 20 years old, not, well, you know, well, late 20s. I mean, you know, there's no timetable. And like, if we want to talk about like rock bottoming, uh, you know, I, two, a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, my wife, my partner of 10 years asked for a divorce. And, um, you know, I look back at that and I'm like, uh, a failure, you know, in a lot of ways on my part. And, um, I, uh, but probably like in a lot of ways, the kick in the ass that I needed, there were a lot of like, there've been so many transformative, uh, moments since then, you know, not least of which was us reconnecting and starting the company and starting the podcast. And I, but I think one of the important, I think one of the things about cat, like catalysts and transformation, I think there is, the, and, and again, this comes back to like precon preconception. And I think that one of the things that has always held me back, always stopped me, always informed the choices that I've made or how I've lived is preconception and a, a either a, um, a vision of how I think things are going to go or a vision of how I want them to go. And while I don't, while of course we all need goals and dreams and ambitions and, and desires and a course of action to try to achieve those, I think when we get fixated on how we want a particular thing to be or 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 thinking how things are going to be after a certain point I I think it 
I, I think I think that's a great, great human folly. And I think for me, it's been a great human folly. And I think one of the one of the things that I've learned and I, I've, I've watched a lot of other people grow, go through similar life blow ups. I mean, I, I got divorced. I left. I've been living in L.A. for 10 years. I left L.A., quit all my jobs Um and you know, slowly one one thing after moved another. Moved to New York. <laughs> I moved to New York for six months. That's true. I did. Uh, went and visited Australia. Started a, a company with with Ria, um, and got a uh, you know have have been working with a company that I've been doing some a great company, uh, global company that I I really have a lot of passion for, um, and and a uh, a lot of great respect for, uh, and. So, so thing, those things have been good, but, um, there's nothing in like, there's nothing transformative to me when I, and when I think of a moment as transformational, I I mean that it, 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 that's, it's a, that's a recurring process. Right. And I think, I think that the preconception of a transformational experience or the preconception of rock bottom or, the way a lot of people that I know who'd been through similar ordeals uh, that I had at my same age, the way they portrayed life was that like, you know, then there was a singular moment and their, their life took a left turn and they've never looked back. And I, I don't know. And so I, I just, I think what I want to imp- or impart, not only for whoever's listening, but, for myself as well is like it doesn't it doesn't work like that like cr- terrible shit happens and then some good shit happens and then some other terrible shit might happen also like you know 2 years ago yeah in in the 2 years that um since since my life sort of blew up i've made a lot of strides but also we're in quarantine for a pandemic without any national leadership right now so you got to take the good with the bad i think the important part is just that you find ways to and i think i'm going to come back to this a lot and i think we come back to this a lot i think one of the most important parts about any kind of transformation or any kind of failure or addressing any kind of mistake is that you can surrender your ego long enough to learn the fucking lesson and move on. Well, see, and I and yeah. to keep doing that time and time. See, and again. I repeat, I repeat mistakes. Like I've, I've really realized that with myself. Like oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So not, not saying. I mean, my marriage now is awesome. It's not a mistake, but I, but I did end up getting married again, and we ended up leaving Chicago again, and we ended up moving to Nashville to a place that we don't really love. And I'm like, why? Why do we keep making these mistakes? But before that, I kind of repeated another mistake. Um, so I, I had that first book published, and you know that was kind of a disaster. I felt like it was a bit of a joke, but also really um, a massive learning lesson for me. I was like, I still want to be published, but I'm going to do it the right way <laughs> next time. And <laughs> so... After I got divorced and moved to Chicago, I kind of went wild. Like I hadn't dated. I mean, I hadn't dated since I was 19 years old and I had the best year of my life just trying to navigate. I mean, again, this was still way before, like I wasn't really on social media. I don't even think I was on Facebook at the time. I rarely used a cell phone, which was great. So I actually had to like go out and meet people and, you know, try to figure out what I was doing with my life. But 
because of everything that had happened with that affair, I decided to write a nonfiction book called The Cheat Sheet, which was basically like a guide to figuring out if someone's being unfaithful, um, whether it's a man or a woman, whatever. And, you know, it had like lots of graphics and fun stuff. And so I got the idea for this book and I ended up landing an agent and man, I wish I'd had those questions that we did on our last podcast to ask because once again, I entered a very kind of one-sided relationship. I did not know the questions to ask. I did not feel comfortable with this agent at all. And I had to jump so many hoops to try to present them with this book proposal idea because I was no one. I was not known. I did not have a big author platform. So they were like, you have to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, um, which is fine. Like, of course I was willing to work. I, they said, jump. I said, how high, you know, I did all of these things, but then I wrote this book and they like, so I wrote the entire thing and they ended up bringing on a co-author who was very well known in the infidelity world. And they just wanted to slap her name on the book. And so like, this was my first legitimate book. We ended up getting a book deal with Adams Media, who ended up being bought out by Simon and Schuster. And we got a nice little advance. And I was so excited. I was like, this is legitimate. This is going to change my life. This is going to, oh my God, we're going to be on like radio and TV and we're going to be everywhere. And you know, this infidelity expert, she has like so many connections and she's done so many things. I remember having this like fancy book release party in Chicago and feeling so excited. And then it was just like crash and burn in sales. Like there was nothing, there was no publicity there. I mean, it was crickets. I mean, it was, I don't even know to this day, I've never seen a royalty statement. The literary agency never sent me anything. Like I, I never received a single thing from that book. I don't know how many copies were sold. Are you I don't kidding? Know. No, don't know if we ever made our advance back. I didn't know like what to do, how to do it. And I remember the guy that I, you know, severed ties with he, cause he and I first started talking about this concept of this idea. Like, wouldn't it be crazy if there was an idea or if there was a book, you know, about infidelity and like the clues and how to figure it out and all these personal stories. And I remember being in Chicago and he, he called me. It's the last time I've talked to him well over a decade ago. And he found out that I had this book published and he was like, if my name is anywhere in that book, I will sue you for everything that you're worth. And if you make money from this book, I expect to get half. And that was the last time I ever talked to him. And I was petrified. I was like, oh my God, like, is he entitled to money from this book? And of course I didn't name him. I never would do that uh, in the book. And it, it ended up being a moot point anyway. Like I never saw a dime of that book. But so I went from publishing this crappy little book that I never saw a dime of to now I've gotten, you know, a decent little advance and really like traditional legitimate publisher never saw a dime from that book and, you know, severed ties with that literary agency. And from there I was like, what, where am I going now? Like, so now I have kind of like two failed books, but then I ended up writing three more nonfiction books, power vegan, which by far did the best of all of them. I 
ended up, you know, doing like lots of TV and radio and podcasts and the publisher was great, but, um, you know, didn't sell a ton of copies, um, with that either. And again, with the, the final two books were with a smaller publisher, kind of same thing. I cranked out the books and just was like, okay, they, they came, they went, they didn't make a splash. So I started equating writing books with <laughs> just like not making money and just saying that, oh, I'm a published author. And yes, my books are in bookstores. And yes, I have a traditional publisher, but like, I felt like I was lying or felt like I was playing a part that I really didn't get to have my hand in. Like I wasn't getting the real author experience. Like all of these other people with massive author platforms and massive followings. And I felt less than because yes, I was an expert at that time in the health and wellness industry. I had 15 years under my belt. I was certified in nutrition and um, specialized in plant-based nutrition. I'd gotten a lot of, um, just a lot of exposure in Chicago actually at the time, but I still felt, and I still feel to this day that I'm always like second tier. Like I can never seem to climb my way up to like sit at the top. And why is that even important to me? You know what I mean? I feel like, I feel like in the age too, as I've watched social media blossom and as I've watched influencers come up and out of the woodwork and how it's really changed the book publishing industry and what it even takes to get a book deal and how I work with authors, I'm so old school. And I'm just like, man, if, if I could just, you know, why can't the craft be enough? And like, why can't the person who works hardest win? And why can't, like, it's just so interesting to me that I still have this kind of complex. Well, and that's also what, that seems like what's fair. I think I really struggled with my identity of like, oh, I've got to be something. So like, if I'm not if I'm not religious and I don't want to be a parent and, you know, I want to be a successful author, but I'm also really into health and wellness. Like I've always, I think we always have to, we feel like we have to fit into these boxes when I, when I've really always straddled the line between wanting to play the game that society demands of us. If we're going to be a published author, if we're going to make it really big And also just wanting to be left the fuck alone and to just be and focus on like moving my body and breathing and putting my fucking phone down and doing what feels good, like standing in the grass and grounding myself to nature and spending time with people I really want to spend time with and eating good food and not paying attention to the news. And I think it's it's such a hard line to figure out where your place is in a world specifically now that feels so uncertain. Our careers are so uncertain, our just everything's so uncertain and really deciding who you want to be and how you want to show up like failures and all can, can seem tricky to navigate. Yeah. And I think be, I think that the encouragement there is like, cause you know, one of the things that I, feel that I've done in my life again, uh, uh, you know, not to, I'm, I'm like throwing a blanket over everything, but like I, I have, I have consistently turned to others. I've consistently sought answers elsewhere. I've consistently defined myself by who, who I'm quote unquote being mentored by. 
taking taking another person's lead. And I, I think that what we're being shown now and what you learn maybe slowly, maybe other people are just like born with the inherent knowledge that they can they can trust or listen to themselves is that you should do what you feel and there is no I mean, yes, all right, there's a certain like amount of like right and wrong, but like don't my ex wife used to say this amazing thing. She you know, she said if you say that you should do something, that's probably a good indicator that that, that it's not serving you in any way. Um, and I think, I think that's great advice. And I, I think that I have always sort of, I always sort of live by the should. And even some of the, you know, my own, I think one of my big mistakes and failures actually, and you know, you and I've talked about this a lot is like, um, I've always been like a bit of a drinker, a bit of a, like a partier, a bit of like, and I think it's something that's always gotten in the way. Now it's up to me um, to decide when that gets in the way and when it's time to like dial it back or when it's time to cut it out and when it's time to, to get to work or, or, but I, but, but the other of the other side of that is that what, and what people do when they have behavior that they then look to others for the right answer and then they judge their own behavior and then they shame themselves for that behavior. And we all get stuck. I mean, ultimately like, I, I have lived most, I'm just a scared little boy. Like, and I think that that's a great, I think that's a great description of like most men I know. It's like, oh yeah, we're just, we're all just a scared well, little boy. You're not given the tool. I mean, that's the thing is like, we're, we're number one, we're taught not to trust ourselves. Number two, men specifically, you are not taught to feel your feelings and to vocalize those feelings. Number three, we are not taught how to think, especially in school. We are taught how to how to behave, what is deemed like, okay, you're smart or you're not smart if you know this measured set of shit that you'll never use in your life. Oh my God. Yeah, and, here's and a nice standardized yes, we're test. We're not taught how to be emotionally intelligent. We are not, I mean, knowing how to think and, and I'm really seeing it during this time, right? Like drinking has gone up so significantly. Watching Netflix has gone up so significantly. I always refer to this as buffering activities because we will do anything, children included really, because they don't know how to be bored anymore, but to avoid being with ourselves. And that means facing all the shit that we don't want to face and figuring out what we really want and what hasn't worked in the past and, you know, how you want to just how you want to live your life and how you want to feel and instead it's so much easier to sink into that cocoon of comfort even if it's destructive and and just not be with ourselves and i i watched my daughter like this morning she, it was raining here and every morning she goes outside and she swings and she listens to music and that is how she starts her day and this morning it was raining and she's like my whole day is ruined i'm so bored what am i supposed to do and i was like just sit here or play or think and I've noticed like it's so hard for her to not be drawing reading listening to music you know watching tv if if that's something that she you know she does or we watch a movie or something or busying herself with something and I feel like all of us right now we have to busy we're just like busying ourselves we're busying our minds with social media and news and swiping and talking to people and we don't even know how we feel about any of this because we're being told what to feel what to fear 
how to think, what to avoid. And I'm, again, seeing it in an eight-year-old is like a, a total mirror of, you know, what could be <laughs> like if she doesn't if she doesn't learn how to trust herself and how to be with herself. And she asks me, she'll come up to me and ask like, oh, can I do this or can I do that? And I'm like, make your own decision. Do you think this is a good decision for you right now? Because you're, we're not taught to how to like trust ourselves enough to make the right decisions. And that means absolutely falling flat on our faces. It means trying a bunch of shit and failing until we get to the desired outcome because, or we're encouraged to make decisions based on, you know, the schema of our parents, which maybe a lot of times it's like making the decision that seems the safest rather than sometimes the best decision. And this is why like case by case is decision by decision. Like sometimes it's about making the decision. That's the riskiest. Uh, and you're not your parents. That's the thing. It's like, who are you pleasing? Like do not please your partner your parents, your employer, please no society. one ruin everybody else's yes, life. Yes, like, <laughs> but I mean, but but I, I, it is absolutely critical to get crystal clear on what you actually want. And none of us, how many of us, spend even ten minutes a day sitting and thinking about how we want to feel and what we want versus what we don't want, what we're scared of. Oh shit. Am I going to get this virus? Oh God, I got a little cough. Like I'm going to die. Oh my God. I don't have my job. Like it, it's crazy, right? Like we're, we're constantly in this self-protective mode, um, biologically just the way that we're, we're built. But if we even spent seriously five minutes a day thinking about, dreaming about big limitless goals the way children do i mean i love that they're like every five minutes like i can do that i can be that. well and also then the other trick and this is like i think my big lesson from my entire life up to this point um don't get I, married I think, like, don't get <laughs> married <laughs> no, um yeah absolutely um i think that you know kids will say like oh i can do that and then they'll go just do it. And yes. I think, I mean, I've had Action. a lot of, I've had so much, so much failure in my life. I've had failed marriages, failed career pursuits, failed projects, failed, uh, jobs, um, failed schooling. Like, I mean, honestly, like if I look back at it, a lot of great experiences, but like in a lot of ways for one reason or another, one failure after another. And I would say that, but, but I would say that I don't catalog those necessarily in that way, but I think the one big, and I'm going to call it a failure. I'm not going to call it a mistake, but I think the one big failure of my life is all the times and they're replete. There are a lot of them all the times that I, I didn't do. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. And I think if I had just done a thing instead of not doing it out of laziness, fear, apathy, for whatever reason. I don't care what it was. And I think I think fear or laziness are my predominant have been like the predominant inhibitors, but any time that I haven't done or haven't put out or haven't produced or haven't put myself on the line or haven't taken that risk any time those are all my big, that's my biggest failure. Oh my God. Those are my biggest failures. You and me both, like that, that is my hugest problem. I mean, I, I, I do act a lot, but 
Like I, I love taking action. I know massive action is like the only way to make things happen, but I spend an exorbitant amount of time talking about things that frustrate me. I want to move. We need this, blah, blah, blah. I'm stressed. Instead of just shutting up and like taking action on the thing that would solve the problem. I think so much anxiety comes from this indecision that we sit in and this like talking to uh, talking about our problems with friends or, you know, just thinking the same thoughts like day after day instead of like, okay, here's the problem and I can take two courses of action. Both courses of action, let's say they're going to end up the best in the best result possible, which one do I take? And then make that decision and then go do that thing. And if we were efficient like that in our lives, I mean, so much time would be saved because I think all of us are experiencing in this crazy time warp that we're in. Like time passes no matter what. Like if there's a pandemic, if you can't go anywhere, if you know, you're know you living your best life, like if tragedy strikes, if you win a million dollars, like time is going to pass. And the only thing that is going to continue to, to be true is like whether you sit back and stay in your little comfort zone or you get out there and you actually do things and try things. And it is not easy. It is so uncomfortable, uh, but it's necessary. And, but I think it's also okay to be really gentle with yourself and realize like we all do this it's human um and i feel i think a lot of us right now feel really stuck and trapped like we finally decided we probably do want to move and the places that we want to move we can't really go visit <laughs> right now so it's like we finally made the decision that it's taken us 7 years to make and you know, now I feel like we're, we're, but, but because we've actually made the decision and we're actually going to take the steps to get there, it's amazing just to be out of that indecision. And it's amazing to realize, oh my God, we've spent seven years talking about the same well, thing. Well, cause don't forget, don't forget that the, the, the making the decision is the first and most it's integral part huge. of the process. Like if you could get into a daily practice of just making decisions like I mean I've noticed that with my husband he does not like to make decisions uh I mean it could be just what are we having for dinner I don't know what do you want like so we have gotten into this practice where he has to kind of take on more of the decision making just like daily decision making uh because it is a practice and so many of us get into this like I don't know, just like default mode of not. Well, and it's easy. Like we, we live in a society where it's easy to be like, if you don't know what you want to, we want to, you want to have for dinner, then you just like, or you don't know where you want to like go out to eat or like order in from. You just like go on an app and scroll through your options until well, something. And there's too many, there's too many options. So I think we get that decision fatigue too, right? Like, and just in life, uh, I mean, we're sitting here talking about failures, but it's so funny, like all of these failures or experiences or things that led to these amazing moments or breakthroughs. I mean, most of mine, I identify way before like social media and I started using my phone and I started wasting so much time on that. Like the, the crystal clear big moments in my life are always like pre that era. Isn't that funny? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like I try to everything kind of runs together <laughs> over the last 
few years when we're just so inundated with information and decisions to make. And now like we can do anything and be anything. And it's like, shit, I just want to take a nap. There's too many things to, to <laughs> I'm choose tired from. I'm tired. I'm tired. From all the choices. From I think what choices. we're really trying to say here is write yes, your- Yes, tell me write, because write, I'm not getting to it. <laughs> write your fucking book. Yeah, write, write your book. Let's take it back to that. Well, and this is such a perfect time and we've really seen it with our business. I mean, I kind of panicked when the pandemic started because we are a new business and I didn't know if we were going to survive. And then all of a sudden it's like, People have decided I am going to invest in myself now and I'm going to do the thing that I've never had time to do before and and just write. And well, and is there not a version of it where simultaneously, and I am not trying to, I would, I am not making light of COVID, and, uh, but I think there is a benefit to trying to look at at least some of the silver lining when we're all sort of, trapped in this hell but like <laughs> and watching our loved ones get sick and people are dying and our administration is not doing anything but i do think that quarantine from covid both prevents us both traps us and also frees us up because i think there's something about there this is the realization that like guess what like time is limited and no one is safe and uh, you know, I think in in the aftermath of some of like the 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 most like the spikes of the pandemic, I think people have been criticizing the sense of American exceptionalism as though sickness and death and time don't apply uh, to to America. That's that's sort of how we think. And I think the realization here is no. They all do, and we don't have any days left. So let's figure out how to, um, yeah, f like take action and do all those things that we've always said we've wanted to do. Which I, you know, the quarantine has been as socially um, draining and mentally upsetting and, you know, the fear and the panic, all of the anxiety that's come with it. I have finally done things that I've said I wanted to do for 10 years. Just simple things like, Again, starting every single day. I've not missed a day since March. Uh, starting my day with a 30-minute breathing practice, followed by meditation. We finally built a home gym, which we've been talking about forever. We just splurged and got, like, an infrared sauna, which will help with, like, inflammation and, you know, stress relief. And we've finally gotten into some really amazing conversations about our marriage and what we need to work on and our parenting and our business and how we want to live and where we want to live. And it's all been from just being forced to be still. And I, I mean, I think that is such a gift that everyone can utilize because we get to control. The only thing we can control is how we're, you know, thinking, feeling and acting on a second by second basis. And I'm really starting to realize, like, I don't know if you're like this, Joe, but if I do something like if I, I don't know, I get an idea in my head. I'm like, this is how it's going to be every day from now on until the end of time. And I'm really realizing it's like, you know what? I am truly as cliche as it is taking it day by day because the moods are different every day. The motivation is different every day. Uh, and, and just like truly taking it as it all comes, but, but trying to still not put things off until tomorrow. Like, oh no, I'll get to that tomorrow. Just do something 
today, every day, like to, to build that momentum, especially when it comes, you know, to if you've always had a dream or a goal or in our case, you know, in, in our industry, writing a book or pitching an idea, like do it now. Why not? The only, the only other extra thing I would offer is like do something today. Just remember that you don't have to do everything today. Everything. Exactly. Um, and like, I think, One thing. You know, I, tiny thing. I think it's, a, I think you bringing up like, so like look at like getting up, in the morning and like the moment her routine is thrown off, she was like, well, there goes the day. Exactly. I, 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 I have that tendency also. And I'm sort of like, if I don't, if I don't get, do a little bit of everything that I have to do during a day, I I'm willing to like, kind of like toss it in the trash and be like, you're a fucking failure, man. But the reality is, is that you've got like the opportunity to do like one or two things. So prioritize, pick those things, do them and then give yourself a break. Put your feet up. Like, yes. You know. Oh, my God. We need to just there. I mean, if you're not going to do that now, when are you going to do it? But just if you don't if you get up and you don't feel like doing something and you're not in an office right now or you want to lay around, read books and take a nap, like do that. I think if we could take away learning to listen to our bodies. I mean, I've said this forever, but like when cold and flu season comes around, God help us all. But, you know, a lot of people during that time of year are so, they hustle so much and they're going out and they're doing all these things and they're not listening to like, you know what? I'm really tired. I need to listen to my body. I really don't feel good today. Like maybe I should stay home. (laughs) And I think if we can take from quarantine, like just learning to listen to ourselves more. And that's a daily practice. I'm still trying to just trying to implement because I tend to say yes to things that I really want to say no to and repeat mistakes or take on too much all of the time and live in this perpetual state of stress, which has become my comfort zone. My comfort zone is actually working myself into an early grave because I, I just, I'm, I, I think I'm afraid to just truly be intentional and go deep on one or two things versus doing it all because that's just what I'm used to is used to like producing and keeping my, my mind occupied. Yep. Me too. Same, same, same. Jesus Christ. Don't do that, everybody. So this has been, this has been so positive, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it's. I think it's good to get to get real and it's actually really fun to sit back and kind of examine. I mean, I don't I don't really like look at failure. I love failure. Like I think failure leads you to I think losing and failing and having to adapt are three of the most important things. Like what do you learn from winning or what do you learn from being on top all the time? Like your ego gets bigger. You don't really learn any lessons. And so I think it's really fun to get to talk through a lot of this stuff and just kind of revisit it, uh, which we often don't do. Um, so yeah, sit around, think about your failures. I mean, and it's also like, use our failures to your advantage and go to rightwayco.com. That's right. We can help you because of uh, all skip the lessons that we've learned from being assholes. 
That's right. And just being naive. I think I was just so naive and, and about this industry in general. And obtuse and, and like very like black or white. And very, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or you just, you see the, you get the stars in your eyes and you see all these like success stories. And like, I want to be just like them. And I know I can be. And, and then you just ignore like the millions of red flags that might present themselves um, themselves to you. So I think, yeah, just let us help you kind of skip all of that and and focus on your goal and the best way to get there. Couldn't have said it better. Great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys for uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we hope that this was uh, entertaining and informative. Um, we'll be airing our grievances periodically on this podcast. So be prepared. Uh, thanks again, everybody. Thanks for listening to right way. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate or review this episode. And if there's something you want to hear, head on over to rightwayco.com and let us know until next time.